Well, good morning. I love Palm Sunday. Since I was a kid, it's one of my favorite days of the year. Um, speaking of holidays, um, be, ask me why sometime. It was pretty fun. Sometimes I play this game with my kids <clears throat> where we tell a story one sentence at a time. Have you ever done this? Where, you know, I'll say a sentence and then kind of go around the circle and each one adds a sentence to it. It goes, it kind of starts there and goes around until it gets so absurd that you stop, you know. I mean, it's eventually it just is incoherent. You, know, you can imagine playing with a creative nine-year-old boy and a strong six-year-old girl and a whimsical four-year-old girl, how, how the stories can go. They tend to kind of change course very quickly and go in some unexpected directions, so to speak. So when I read through our passage for today, it kind of reminded me of that. It was almost like Peter was, was, was uh, he kind of, almost like he let his mind wander is what my first thought was. You know, he was, well, you'll see when we read the passage. Let's look at, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in, a, a few, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience." Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. <clears throat> so, you know, the beginning and the end are pretty clear. You look at verses 18 and 22, and they're, they're recognizable. That's something that's familiar to us. They're, rec- they're describing the pattern of Jesus' own life. His humiliation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, his glory. These are things that have been, uh, you know, foundational to the Christian faith for centuries and have been, you know, like confessed by Christians, like, for example, in the Apostles' Creed for now two millennia. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy, uh, the Son of God, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. He rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. If you've been a Christian very long, you've probably said those words. And and if you look at verses 18 and 22, the creed maybe gives a little more detail than just these verses do. But these verses kind of follow that recognizable shape for us. But then something happens in between, you know, verses 19, 20. 21, in the middle it's harder to understand. Peter seems to sort of jump topics very quickly. Kind of like my kid's story game, you know. And what's more, a couple of the things that he mentions here are actually pretty difficult to understand. Some of the more kind of cloudy uh, references in the New Testament, a couple of them are right here in this passage. So it makes it a little bit uh, difficult to understand. Let's look at verses 19, 20, and 21 and see, see what we can make of them. First, in verse 19, it tells us that Jesus went and proclaimed to imprisoned spirits. And this is a very mysterious statement. We usually try to use the clearer parts of the Bible to clarify the not as clear parts of the Bible, you know. Uh, But in this case, there's not a lot else to help us out. 
there's not a lot of other references to something like this in the Bible. So it's kind of like, well, what does this mean? Um, there, are, there are at least, you know, maybe there's more, but you can kind of broadly categorize them into sort of three theories of what this means. And so I'll just kind of briefly outline them, and we'll see what we can make of it. The first is that the belief that between his death and his resurrection, that Jesus went to the place of the lost spirits. You know, call it hell, or uh, there's different names for it in the Bible, you know, Sheol, or... uh, But he went to the place of the lost spirits and proclaimed the gospel to people who had... Uh, not had chosen not to follow God in this life, but in now they're being given sort of a second chance in the next life. And this is an intriguing idea. It's an intriguing because it sounds like the kind of thing Jesus would do. I mean, he was a proclaimer of good news. Um, and it answers the question of what happened to Jesus between his death and his resurrection. However, outside of this verse, we really don't find any other mention of anything like this in the whole Bible. In fact, the idea of this, the whole idea seems to contradict a, a lot of other verses that indicate that dying apart from Christ is a permanent sort of thing. So that one, that's theory one. It doesn't have a huge amount of appeal, um, but but you could see why it would have some. Okay, set, version two is the belief that between his death and his resurrection, Jesus went to the place where souls of believers are waiting for their own re- resurrection. So this would be the Old Testament people who believed the promises of God, who died before having seen the Messiah. They, they heard about the Messiah. They wondered what he would look like. They wondered what he would be like. And this, this, this sort of take on it is that Jesus went to them and said, here I am. I'm the one that you were waiting for. And that he, he proclaimed the good news of his coming to those who were, uh, the, the believing souls that were separated from their bodies, waiting for their own resurrection. Again, honestly, there's not really a lot else in the Bible that talks about this. So it's fairly conjecture, you know, sort of, sort, of, uh, sort of approach to the passage. But it's better than the first theory, since it doesn't appear to contradict some of the other passages in the Bible. The third understanding focuses on the relationship between verses 18 and 19. Look, look at it real quick, for just a, for a second. You see where verse 18 ends? Verse 18 ends talking about doing something in the spirit. And then it says in verse 19 in that he proclaimed. And it's tying these two ideas together. And this, this is the belief is separating these two things in time and saying, well, you know, don't confuse these things as happening at the same time. Uh, once Jesus proclaimed the gospel in the spirit, and then there was another time when he died and was later resurrected. So this, you know, he's talking about events of Jesus' ministry, but they may not be happening at the same time. You see, so they're separating the two out. Okay, so those are the three kind of broad categories. What are we to make of this? Well, I'll reiterate, this is a pretty tough passage, and uh, one of the more shadowy verses in the Bible, because there just really isn't much to compare it to. So I don't know exactly what to do with it, for sure. The first option that is, Jesus proclaiming to unbelieving souls doesn't seem very workable because it seems to be the least biblical. Um, The second option, it seems like many of the the church fathers believed the second option. Lots of people in the early church believed that between his death and his resurrection, Jesus descended into hell from the creed. And they they understood, the church fathers understood that to mean Jesus went to the place where uh, believers 
souls were waiting for their resurrection and he revealed himself to them and said, guess what, that's me. So there's been a lot of back and forth on verse 19 over the years. And I would say that no explanation has really won the day, so to speak. So what I want to focus on for our purposes this morning is what we do know, what we can get out of this. You know, maybe that's something for you to ponder uh, further. But what do we know? It says here in this verse that it was an essential part of the ministry of Jesus to proclaim the good news to sinners by his spirit. That is what, what's one thing we do know that it says? Now you could say, well, that's obvious. You know, that's what he did a lot in his life. Well, maybe it's meant to be obvious. Maybe Peter's calling our attention to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate proclaimer of good news to sinners through his spirit. That's what we do know. So we're going to take that and look at it and use that in the context of the rest of the passage. Okay, verse 20. In verse 20, it tells us that Noah built an ark to save his family. I mean, if you've been around the church for a while, you know that that's at least somewhat con- less controversial, you know? There's, that one's a little more clear-cut. But, at the same time, it seems kind of random, doesn't it? You know, here's Peter's writing along, and he goes from, Jesus suffered and died, and then he proclaimed something to some people, and then Noah built an ark. You know, it's <laughs> he's, he's kind of hopping around at this point, you know? Hmm, Peter, what's going on here? Uh, But then he takes it even a little bit further. Look at verse 21. He says in verse 21 that Noah's ark is actually actually about baptism, which saves us, you know. So, I mean, he goes from Jesus suffered and died, he proclaimed some stuff to some people, Noah built an ark, and by the way, I'm talking about baptism. You know, it's, (laughs) so he kind of leaps around quite a lot, as you can see. Now, at this point, I initially had written it all out and everything. I had planned to address the idea of what, I wanted to talk about baptism and what does baptism actually do and what does it not do and I wanted to clarify that uh, you know because Peter uses very strong language here he says baptism saves you in some sense what does that mean well I had some stuff and but just it's it's such a big topic like you, we're just going to have to separate it out and deal with it another time that's what I felt like I mean I just can't in a short space do justice to the idea of what baptism does and doesn't do uh, that you can you can imagine how that grew on me right so I thought, well, we'll just, we're just going to have to... It's too big to fit into a small space, so we're going to have to save it for another day. But notice here, let's do uh, what we can take with us as we, as we try to understand this passage. Notice what P- Peter elaborates a little bit on what he means by baptism saves you. It's not the outward washing that saves us, he says, but the good conscience that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. He wants to clarify that. So there's a clarification offered. It's not the washing. It's not the outside. It's not the removal of dirt. It's not baptism by soap. You know, it's baptism by something happening to your conscience. Uh, Something happening to your your conscience before God. And that something happening is empowered, enabled, built, constructed. Uh, It's caused by the resurrection of Jesus in some way. Okay. So what should we think about that passage? We, here in verse 22, just glance at verse 22. After all that about imprisoned souls, Noah's Ark, and baptism, Peter returns to the familiar things in verse 22 and describes the power and the glory of the risen and ascended Savior. So at first read, it all, it's almost like Peter's writing along, he's talking about Jesus, then all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, proclamation. Oh yeah, Noah's Ark. Oh yeah, baptism. And he chucks them together. 
What are we supposed to do with this? Okay. Well, here's how we can make some sense of this. When I encounter something in the Bible that's strange, when I see something in the text that's unexpected, you know, the Bible, uh, you've seen this, you're reading along a story and it chucks a random fact at you. You know, it tells you something about someone that you're like, wow, what is, how does that serve the story? When I see that kind of thing, I try by default to assume that it was written that way on purpose. You see, I think it's really easy for us to look back at people from, you know, pre-our era and think that, you know, they just were probably just not as, as good at writing or something, you know. Um, they, you know, Peter probably just wasn't a very good writer. Uh, maybe he was, you know, maybe this is evidence that Peter was a daydreamer. Well, I mean, you could speculate about that if you want, but um, if you believe that God wrote some stuff down that he wants us to know, I mean, there's purpose behind it. There's design behind it. So when I read the Bible, I try to assume, I try to begin at the starting place of, it's written this way for a purpose. There's, there's something behind it. And it's, if I'm not tracking with that, it's my fault. It's not the author's. I'm not reading well. Or I just don't, there's something I'm missing. There's a piece that I haven't plugged into place yet, right? Um, so it's my job to try to figure out what is the purpose of these verses that I'm reading uh, in this section because the author wrote it that way for a reason. That's, that's my starting assumption anyway when I'm reading the Bible. That doesn't always, you know, you sometimes I have that assumption and I read it and I say, I don't know what he's talking about. But that's, what I, that's where I, I come from, where I come to the text from. So in this case, what is Peter's purpose in combining these verses together? So I think we have to remember the context. If you've been here for the last few weeks, maybe you remember that in the previous sections of Peter, and if you're going to be here for the next couple weeks, you'll see that in the following sections of Peter, this book is really focused in on one particular thing. Peter is writing to Christians who are struggling through times of suffering because they are following Jesus. And in previous sections, you see that he's talked about what to do if you're, you're suffering because of your family, because of your spouse, because of your employer, because of your government. And now, in these verses, what is he doing? Look again at verse 18. And after talking about your suffering, what does Peter do? He holds up Jesus as an example of suffering to you. That's what he's doing in this section. So however we understand the middle verses, it has to be a part of the idea that Peter is holding up Jesus and saying, be like Jesus. Peter expects his readers to measure their lives by, by Jesus himself. And so I'm just going to summarize. Let's, let's listen to this summary real quick of how Peter describes Jesus' life in verses 18 to 22. I'm just going to kind of focus in on the verbs. First comes suffering, then follows death and new life. There is a proclamation of good news that leads to the salvation of a rebellious people, which is sealed by, uh, which is sealed by salvation through water. This results in a good conscience, and finally, exaltation before God in heaven. Those are all the pieces of this, the things he mentions in here, kind of all strung together. And that's Jesus' story. That's the story of Jesus' ministry on earth. Peter is using um, the ark and baptism and all of the, little, all of the components. He's using all of those as 
to, to illustrate what Jesus did when he was suffering. You see? Um, this is all of the things that Jesus himself accomplished through life, death, and resurrection. And we praise Jesus for all of those things. But don't miss the fact, too, that Peter is calling Christians to emulate Jesus. Because this is our story, too. Jesus has called us to join him in the story. If you are a Christian, think back to how you became a Christian. It all started with suffering, right? The suffering that comes from our struggle with sin and guilt. But then comes what? Death to self and new life in Christ through the proclamation of good news by the Spirit of Christ to a rebellious people and that salvation is sealed through water. You see, all of the components that Peter mentions in this moment of holding Jesus up as our example, they're all elements of Jesus' story, but they're also all elements of our story. There's something that we've known and participated in. It's all in there. Jesus is making his story our story too. It's our redemption story, and if you have experienced this redemption story, you know how Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. It's, very, it's kind of implicit here. It's kind of, it's, uh, if you read carefully, you spot it. But look what Jesus does to the water in this passage. Just the water. Water's an inert object. It's just there, right? But Jesus changes the water in this story. Look at it. He says, Formerly in the days of Noah, there were people saved. But how many? Not very many. Eight. It says, and you know, here's a detail thrown into the text. Eight people were saved. Why does he tell you eight people were saved? Well, he wants you to, to notice how few there were. And how many families were they? One. <laughs> you know, formerly in the days of Noah, salvation came to few people. And how were they saved? They were saved through waters of death. It was a water that kills. Do you see? What's happened now? What's changed in the water? He, why does he go from Noah's Ark to baptism? Why does he make that leap and not another leap? There's other water he could talk about. Well, he wants you to notice how the water has changed. He wants you to notice that once upon a time, a few people were saved through the water of death, but now, because of the work of Jesus, many people are saved through the water of life. Jesus has changed the water itself. The, the water is now not a symbol of destruction, of judgment. The water is now a symbol of salvation, a symbol of blessing. Jesus said, Behold, I make all things new. That's true of the waters. And the reason Peter's pointing that out to you is because if Jesus can do that to water, he can do that to you. Okay, this is Jesus' story is our story. We're called to participate in it. But it's not just a function of our past. This is not just something that happened to us when we came to Jesus. It's also what Jesus has called us to do in the future. He's calling us to participate. Peter's calling us to participate in the ministry of Jesus, the suffering ministry of Jesus, in each of these same ways. Let me show you what I mean. When you look out at the world, what do you see? I don't know. It seems to me, and maybe I've just got my you know, steady diet of pessimistic media or something like that. 
but it seems to me that the suffering of our world is usually more visible than the joy of resurrection in our world. You know, if you were to say, which one of them is dominant, which one? I mean, I think we live in a world of suffering more than we live in a world uh, of the joy of resurrection. At least that's what it seems like to our eyes. So, the question for you, Peter has, is what are you going to do about it? You see, the pattern of Jesus, the pattern that Peter is calling us to emulate is this. Out of love, we choose to enter into the suffering of others. We, proclaim, we become the proclaimers of the news of the good news of his coming to a rebellious people. And by the gracious work of his spirit, our proclamation brings what? Salvation that becomes sealed by water. And it all ends at the joy of resurrection. Peter is calling his readers to follow the example of Jesus, to enter into the same kind of ministry as Jesus. A suffering ministry. But it's a suffering that leads to life. So you can think of it this way. At this point in his letter, in this passage, verses 18 to 22 in chapter 3, Peter is basically making an ancient Wheaties box. Right? He's making a Wheaties box. This is where we display our heroes, right? We put them on Wheaties boxes. Or at least our sports heroes, you know. I'd love to see more artists and, uh, and uh, other civic leaders and that kind of thing on Wheaties. Anyway. So, I mean, it's a, it's a moment for us. To, Peter is saying, Peter's holding up Jesus and saying, this is who you should be emulating. This is your hero. Because the reality is, whoever, whatever's our, whoever is our hero, we emulate them. That's just something we do. So, I mean, it would be a great exercise for you to say, who are my heroes? Who are, who are you know, go home this afternoon and say, who am I emulating? Who am I trying to be like? Um, Peter's, Peter wants you, Peter wants you to put Jesus on the list. He wants you to look at Jesus and say, uh, that's who I should be like. But the, the problem is, what's the, what's the catch, you know? I mean, Jesus is our hero of self-sacrificial suffering, you know? And a suffering hero, that's not typical. That's not our usual choice, you know? I mean, we don't usually look at suffering people and say, that's what, that's what I want to be when I grow up, you know? I want to be that suffering guy, you know? You don't usually, you know, it's, a, it's not a very good sales pitch to hold up the suffering guy and say, here's your hero, be like him. You know, it's not the best marketing, so to speak. But that's what Peter basically, I, let me tell you, the whole letter of First Peter is basically about that. The whole thing. The whole thing is about, he's saying, look, you're going to go through a lot of different things. Here's a lot of different categories, a lot of different responses that you can do. But the whole, the, um, the umbrella under which the whole letter is, is sitting is be like Jesus in your suffering. That's what Peter's entire letter is telling us to do. And here's the thing. I mean, this is, let's, let's be really honest. Uh, you can't avoid suffering. It's not as if uh, not following Jesus. If you say, well, you know what? I don't really like following Jesus because I don't like the idea of uh, a suffering hero, frankly. Um, you know, if you choose to not follow Jesus, it's not like you're going to avoid the suffering. Uh, it's, it's, to, it's, it's a human thing. It's something that happens to human beings to uh, suffer. So trying to avoid the suffering is futile. 
The best question is not, how can I avoid the suffering of embarrassment in a public setting? (laughs) The question is not, how can I avoid it? The question is this, how can my suffering be redeemed? How can my suffering be used for something good? That's the real question. You see, it's a lie. It's a lie. You know, the world will tell you, the, real, the question you should be asking is, how can I avoid suffering? How can I get out of it? You can't. It's a lie. It's a trap. The real question is, how can my suffering be redeemed? So do you believe that Jesus will do what he says he will do? Do you believe that if you follow him, that your life will actually take the same shape as his? Because remember the arc of the story that that Peter's painting for us. It begins with suffering, but it ends somewhere else altogether, you know? So let's, let's look at one example of the arc of this story. Let's look at Holy Week itself. I mean, since today's Palm Sunday, let's look at Holy Week. Holy Week, which is the the week leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus began with the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And in that moment, everybody loved Jesus, right? I mean, he had never been more celebrated and more popular than he was in that moment. Do you remember what happened later that same day? I mean, he gets off the donkey, and where does he go? He walks into the temple. And he drives out of the temple everyone who is using the temple for his own gain, everyone who is blocking people from other nations from coming and worshiping God, Jesus walks into the temple and he drives them all out. And so in the morning it is, all hail the king of Israel. And then in the evening it's, I don't really think we want a king like that. You see? The winds changed very quickly on Palm Sunday. And if you follow Jesus, you should expect that same kind of fickleness to be directed to you. In one moment, people will commend you for being a Christian. What a great person you are. A woman, a man of faith. How pleasant and praiseworthy. That's exactly what they'll say. Verbatim quote. But the the moment, the moment you begin talking about holiness or worship, or God's love for strangers and foreigners and ugly people. The moment you start talking about those things, you will suddenly find yourself less popular. We don't really want a Christian like that. We want the pleasant moral version, right? We don't really want a Christian like that. Later that week, Jesus ate with someone who had betrayed him. He sweated blood while wrestling with life and death decisions. He was silent at his trial while people lied under oath about him to his face. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Some of us know what those kinds of betrayals feel like. We have at least tasted that kind of betrayal. But in the face of Of all of that, it seems downright impossible to say what Jesus said. Not my will be done, but yours. A life of following Jesus means opening ourselves up to those kinds of things. 
And with that in mind, does Peter's Wheaties box hero even make sense? Does following Jesus seem like a good idea at all? Why would we even go there? Well, once again, let's let Holy Week be our example. Jesus did not get to Easter until he had gone through Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday and even Good Friday itself. You cannot be resurrected unless you die first. Following Jesus is not easy, but it's good. Do you want to be resurrected? Who doesn't, right? Who doesn't wish that they could be perfectly reborn? Who doesn't wish that they could be made into the person they're supposed to be? Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. So do you want to bear fruit? Follow Jesus. Because you can't be resurrected until you die first. And I get it. I get, I get it that in our day, the idea of resurrection sounds a bit maybe like odd or something. I get that. Though I do wonder if there was ever a time in the past when belief in the like, actual physical resurrection was normal. You know, I think it's always sounded a bit odd. But these are the words of the ancient creed. This is what Christians believe, and we have believed it for centuries. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come again and judge the whole world. We've believed that for centuries. We've staked our entire lives on it, and some of us have even died for it. Some of us, even this past week, have died for it. And if we follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus, it will be with a cross on your back. But our hope is in this. On the other side of the cross is the life-giving, world-shaking, resurrection joy of Easter. Jesus himself led the way down the road to the cross, and he calls us all to follow him there. Not to the cross, but through the cross to Easter, which we'll celebrate next week.